It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. So the name of this message is Small Beginnings, Mighty Outcomes, and it's based on a scripture in Zechariah 4.10, which is sort of an obscure scripture, but one translation I really like in particular that says, for who dares make light of small beginnings. And it's such an amazing principle in the kingdom of God that he often uses very simple things, very seemingly insignificant insignificant things or weak things or even foolish things to launch some of the most powerful world-changing things that he has planned. And I've definitely seen this in my life. 1 Corinthians 1.27 is based on the same principle. For God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. When I was maybe 15 or 16 years old, I remember being at a, at a church service, and a woman came up and prayed for me at the end, and she felt like God spoke those words of Zechariah 4.10 to her about my life, and she encouraged me through that prayer not to despise the day of small beginnings. I had no idea what that meant, what God was trying to share with me through that verse, but I remember it vividly of her sharing that verse with me. And then I remember fast forward several several years later, and Eric and I were getting married. It was our wedding day, and we had this group of elders and spiritual leaders come up and pray for us during our wedding ceremony. And one of the elders or one of the spiritual leaders prayed that our message, the story, our love story, our, what God had done in our lives would go all around the world. And it was a very unlikely type of prayer because we, had no, we didn't, hadn't written a book, we didn't have a message we were sharing, we didn't have aspirations or thoughts about traveling around the world and sharing a message. That wasn't really the direction we were headed, but that was what God put on his heart to pray. That first year of marriage, Eric and I, we didn't have any big doors of opportunity. We didn't have any kind of big funding to take a message around the world. And we didn't really, we didn't even have a defined message to share. It wasn't until people kept asking us to share our love story with them that we decided, well, we'll just write it down in a little booklet and be able to give that to people because so many people wanted to hear the story and we were honestly just getting tired of sharing it. So we wrote this little book and it was just a simple staple bound booklet and it just captured our love story in a very imperfect, very simple, basic way. There was nothing earth shattering about it other than what God had done in our in our love story and how he had been faithful. But as far as our delivery of the message, the presentation of this book, there was nothing that that exciting about it. It was, it was a flimsy paper-bound, staple-bound little booklet. But it was a small beginning, and it led to a message that actually did go around the world, just like that elder, that spiritual leader had prayed over us at our wedding. And eventually, the, the content in that little booklet, that little staple-bound booklet, became one of the best-selling Christian relationship books ever published. I can honestly say that outcome had nothing to do with us. It had nothing to do with any special talent that we had or any strategy or planning or any kind of 
thing that we brought to the table. Looking back at some of the old writing, we're pretty embarrassed by it now. I'm just like, okay, please don't read it. People will show us, hey, I have one of your really original old books. And we're like, please hide it and don't, we don't want to see it. <laughs> but at its core, that booklet, that little small beginning had a nugget of God's truth that resonated with a truth-hungry generation, and that is what God chose to use. And the key truth I want to point out here is that God often begins his world-changing plans with small and seemingly insignificant beginnings. To impact the world for eternity, we don't need to rise up in human strength. We only need to have a simple childlike faith in a mighty God. Childlike faith is never wasted. God's word does not return void. That's a promise we see in Scripture. And that is certainly a principle that I've seen in my own life. Whenever I felt the pressure to rise up in my own strength, to strategize, to plan, to do something big and significant, it usually doesn't go anywhere. But whenever I simply trust God with a childlike faith and offer him fishes and loaves, that simple beginning, that is when he begins to bless and multiply and change the world. So in this series on black and white America, we're just coming out of World War II. And I think what's really interesting about this time period is despite this turbulent political and social turmoil that's going on after the war, during and after the war, God was doing something very significant in some of the most unlikely places. Out of the ashes and the heartache and the sadness that the war brought, he was also bringing beauty and light and hope. And really, an amazing missionary movement grew out of post-war America at that time. Many significant ministries began as an outflow of the war, and I'll just highlight a few really quickly. Mission Aviation Fellowship was one. World War II pilots used their skills to serve missionaries and ministries and spread the gospel all around the world. They had these skills. They had served in the war as pilots, and now they used those skills for the gospel. The Navigators was an evangelistic ministry that started with sailors and Navy personnel during the war, and they brought hundreds of, of sailors, men who were on these warships, to Christ, and some of them just before they were killed in the war. So that was an outflow of the war. Wycliffe Bible Translators, which began in 1942, had this vision of translating the Bible into languages where no Bible had previously existed. And then there's Corrie ten Boom and her evangelistic travels, which came out of her experiences in the war. And that opened countless thousands of people to the gospel and to the power of forgiveness. And then there was the missionary movement that kind of went from the 1940s to the 1960s, where passionate young men and women went at the risk of their lives to bring the gospel to one of the most dangerous places on earth, which was the unreached interior of Netherlands, New Guinea. And we highlighted that movement in the Daily Thunder series, Daring to Do a Stanley Dale. Very, very fascinating and amazing to see how God was working in these unlikely places for his glory to change the world, even in the, the shadow of post-war America. If you study history and missionary movements and some of these significant ministries that started, nearly all of them started with small beginnings and even seeming discouragement and defeat and failure. And it seemed unlikely, even impossible, that God would ever establish anything significant through them, and yet he did miracles that only he can do. And so we may highlight some of those, those ministries in future episodes. For this message today, 
I just want to highlight three post-war stories that just so beautifully show how God uses the foolish things, the seemingly impossible things, for his glory, and that he often starts with small beginnings. And just to encourage you, I don't know where you're at or where you're at in the calling God has placed on your life, but if he has put a burden on your heart to impact this world for his glory, I encourage you not to despise that day of small beginnings. Don't make light of the day of small beginnings. Don't try to use human strategy or talent to try to help God out. Rest in his power with a simple childlike faith because that's what he can really use. He makes all things beautiful in his time. So I want to start out with highlighting a specific part of Corrie Ten Boom's ministry. She was one of the most powerful evangelists in Christian history, but in the beginning, nobody wanted to hear her message. And many of you are probably familiar with her story, how she and her family were put into a concentration camp in Germany for helping Jews during the war, and how many of her family members died. She paid the price with great suffering and losing many of her family because of helping the Jews. And probably most of you are familiar with the amazing impact that she had on Christianity after the war was over. Really, it was one of the most significant ministries God has ever established in recent decades. And she also wrote one of the best-selling Christian biographies of all time, The Hiding Place. Most Christians in mainstream Christianity today know of Corrie Ten Boom and maybe have been impacted by her and through her. But how did her ministry begin? This is very fascinating to me because it actually came through seeming failure and defeat. And I want to just read to you a few excerpts from her book, Tramp for the Lord, where she kind of highlights those early days of her ministry because they truly were days of small beginnings. So in her last few weeks at Ravensbrück, the concentration camp, She was watching her sister die, and her sister Betsy had this vision of them traveling the world together and proclaiming the gospel and especially reaching out to the Germans who had been so poisoned with bitterness during the war. And so here's just a little excerpt of the last few days she had this conversation with Betsy in the concentration camp. I could feel Betsy's bony hand touching my face. It was pitch black in barracks 28 where 700 other prisoners were asleep. Each day, hundreds of women died, and their bodies were fed to the ovens. Betsy had grown so weak, and we both knew that death was always moments away. Are you awake, Corey? Her weak voice sounded so far away. Yes, you wakened me. I had to. I need to tell you what God has said to me. We we hindered the sleep of other girls around us. Let us lie with our faces toward each other. The cot was so small, we could only lie like spoons in a box, our knees bumping against the knees of the other. We used our two coats as covers, along with the thin black blanket provided by the Nazis. I pulled the coat over our heads so we could whisper and not be heard. God showed me, Betsy said, that after the war, we must give to the Germans that which they now try to take away from us, our love for Jesus. Betsy's breath was coming in short gasps. She was so weak, her body wasted away until there was nothing but her thin skin stretched over brittle bones. Oh, Betsy, I explained, you mean if we live, we, ha- we will have to return to Germany? She patted my hand under the blanket. <clears throat> Corey, there is so much bitterness. We must tell them that the Holy Spirit will fill their hearts with God's love. I remembered Romans 5, 5. Only that morning, some of the women in the barracks had huddled with us in the corner while I read from our precious Bible. But I shuddered to think of returning to Germany. If I were ever released from this horrible place, could I ever return? 
Betsy's weak voice whispered on. This concentration camp here at Ravensbrück has been used to destroy many, many lives. There are many other such camps throughout Germany. After the war, they will not have use for them anymore. I pray that the Lord will give us one in Germany. We will use it to build up lives. No, I thought, I will return to my simple job as a watchmaker in Holland and never again set my boot across the border. Betsy's voice was quivering so that I could barely understand her. The Germans are the most wounded of all the people in the world. Think of that young girl guard who swore in such filthy language yesterday. She was only 17 or 18 years old, but did you see how she was beating that poor old woman with a whip? What a job there is to do after the war. I found a place where I could put my hand. It was such a stupid problem, I thought, yet it was a small cot and was difficult to position my hands and arms. My hand rested on Betsy's left side, just above her heart. I felt her ribs, only skin and bones. How long would she be able to live? Her heart was fluttering inside the ribcage, like a dying bird, as though it would stop at any moment. I rested and thought, how close to God's heart was Betsy? Only God could see in such circumstances the possibility for future, for ministry in the future, for those who were now, even now preparing to kill us. Most of all, to see in such a place as Ravensbrück an opportunity to bless and build up the lives of our enemies. Only the Lord Jesus could have given Betsy such a vision. Must we live with them in Germany, I whispered. For a while, Betsy answered. Then we will travel the whole world bringing the gospel to all our friends as well as our enemies. To all the world, but that will take much money. Yes, but God will provide, Betsy said. We must do nothing else but bring the gospel and he will take care of us. After all, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. If we need money, we will just ask the father to sell a few cows. I was beginning to catch the vision. What a privilege, I said softly, to travel the world and to be used by the Lord Jesus. But Betsy did not answer. She had fallen asleep. Three days later, she was dead. Going to bed the night after Betsy died was one of the most difficult tasks of my life. The one electric light bulb was screwed into the ceiling toward the front of the room. Only a feeble ray reached my narrow cot. I lay in the semi-darkness thinking, remembering, trying to reconstruct Betsy's vision. And I'm going to fast forward in the story. So here, of course, is a small beginning, a seemingly impossible dream and vision where Betsy is about to die and Corey has no idea if she'll die soon and there's no idea when the war is going to end and there's death and suffering all around them and the Germans seem to have all the power and yet Betsy has this vision of ministering to these German people after the war and traveling the world to share the gospel. Only God could have given such a vision in the midst of those circumstances. So Corey is released from the concentration camp through a clerical error, which was really a miracle of God. And she begins to feel a very strong conviction that she is supposed to travel the world and share the hope of Christ, share her story. And she knows eventually she will return to Germany because God has given her the grace in her heart to know that that's something she's called to. But she feels that the first place she's supposed to go is to America. And a lot of Europeans wanted to go to America after the war, but it's very hard to get there. God does one miracle after the next to get her into the country. But when she gets there, she wants to share her story. She feels that there are people there who need to hear her message, but doors keep closing in her face. And God supplies different places for her to stay, but people don't really want to hear her message, and she doesn't have a lot of money. So here we're going to pick back up the story of those early days in America. She said, as the weeks passed, I realized I was running out of money. The Americans were polite and some of them were interested, but none wanted me to come and speak. They were all busy with their own things. Some even said I should have stayed in Holland. As the weeks slipped by, I found more and more resistance to my ministry. No one was interested in a middle-aged spinster woman from Holland who wanted to preach. Why did you come to America? People began to ask. God directed me. All I could do was obey. 
That's nonsense, they answered. There is no such thing as direct guidance from God. Experience proves we must use our common sense. If you are here and out of money, then it is your fault, not God's. I tried to argue back in God's defense, but God's guidance is even more important than common sense. I am certain he told me to bring his message to America. I can declare that the deepest darkness is outshone by the light of Jesus. We have ministers to tell us such things, was the reply. Certainly, but I can tell from my experience in a concentration camp that what such ministers say is true. It would have been better for you to have remained in Holland. We don't need any more preachers. Too many Europeans come to America. They should be stopped. I was growing discouraged. Perhaps the Americans were right. Perhaps I should return to Holland and go back to my job as a watchmaker. My money was gone, and all that remained was a second check given to me by the American businessman. She had met an American businessman in Holland before coming, and he had given her a check to say, if you need it, you can cash it. But she said, I was hesitant to cash it without his approval. I found his address and arrived in an opposing business office in Manhattan. Only this time, his face was not as friendly as it had been in Holland. Do you mind if I cash your second check, I asked. How do, you, how do I know if you can return the money, he asked. You have been in America five weeks and found that there is no work. I think it would be better if you simply returned the check. Mustering all my courage, I said, I am sure God has work for me here. I am in his will, and, he, and somehow I will return all your money. He snorted, tore up the check, and then wrote out another for a much smaller amount. I was embarrassed and humbled. I had money in Holland, a balance left from my first book, and a small income from the business I had sold, but these funds could not be brought to America. I returned to my room and closed the door. It was, a, it was time for a long consultation with my Heavenly Father. Kneeling beside the bed, I prayed, Father, you must help me out. If I must borrow money to return to Holland, people will say, there you see, the promises of the Bible are not real. Direct guidance does not exist. Father, for your honor's sake, you must help me out. I fell weeping across the bed. Then slowly, like a deep realization that dawns in a person's heart, the answer came. Do not worry about my honor. I will take care of that. In the days to come, you will give thanks for these days in New York. A great ocean separated me from my homeland. I had no money. Nobody wanted to hear my lectures. All I had was an inner word from God that he was guiding me. Was it enough? All I could do was press on and on for his name's sake. Before going to sleep, I opened my Bible, my constant companion. My eyes fell on a verse from the Psalms, the Lord takes pleasure in those that hope in his mercy. It was a thin web, a tiny filament stretching from heaven to my little room on 190th Street in New York. I fell asleep holding on to it with all my heart. The next day, I attended a Dutch service in a New York church. Dr. Barclay Wolf was the speaker, and many Hollanders were present, meeting afterward for coffee in the vestry. The Reverend Bugaroff, who had baptized our Canadian-born princess, was presented to me. Ten Boom, he mused when he heard my name. I often tell the story of a nurse by that name. She experienced a miracle in a concentration camp with a bottle of vitamins that never ran out. I tell it to prove God still performs miracles today, as in Bible times. Do you happen to know that nurse? Is she related to you? I felt joy springing into my heart. She is not a nurse, I replied. She is a watchmaker, and you were looking at her. It was I who had that experience in 1944. Then you must come with me to Staten Island and tell your story to my congregation, he exclaimed. I spent the next five days in his pleasant par parsonage with Reverend and Mrs. Bergeroff. Don't know how to say that name. What a joy to eat good Dutch food again. I had been trying to find out how long one could exist on Netic's 10 cents breakfast, which consisted of a cup of coffee, a donut, and a small glass of orange juice eaten while standing at a counter. Now God was resupplying me not only with food but with new hope. I could see that the Lord does take pleasure in those who hope in his mercy. A week later, I returned to Manhattan. Walking down the street, I saw a church with a notice on the door. Drawing closer, I saw it was an invitation to attend the Lord's Supper next Sunday morning, Easter. 
Following the service, the minister gave me the address of Irving Harris, the editor of a Christian magazine called The Evangel. He encouraged me to go by and see him. I did. In fact, the very next morning, I went up to his office and talked to him. I know I am walking in the way God has directed me, I told him, but so many declare there's no such thing as direct guidance. Pay no attention to them, Mr. Harris advised. The Bible contains many promises that God will lead those who obey him. Have you ever heard of a good shepherd who does not lead his sheep? Mr. Harris asked if I had any material which he might use in his magazine. I gave him a copy of one of my lectures and told him to use as much as he could. There is one drawback, he exclaimed. He explained, we cannot pay. This paper exists only to spread the gospel, not for financial profit. Wonderful, I exclaimed. I am in the presence of an American who sees money in its proper perspective. Mr. Harris gave me a name and address in Washington, D.C. He strongly urged me to make an appointment and go see Mr. Abraham Veraday. I don't know how, if I'm saying that name correctly either. I knew nothing of Mr. Veraday at the time, although I have since discovered that he was one of the great Christian leaders of America. I was suspicious, afraid I was being shrugged off again, but I felt I could trust Mr. Harris and followed through, taking a chance and making a phone call to Washington. Mr. Veraday received me graciously, inviting me to Washington as his guest. At dinner, three other guests were present, all professors who plied me with questions throughout the evening. I felt like a schoolgirl who had been invited, had been invited out by her headmistress. My English was crude, and, any, and my mistakes seemed more glaring than ever before. How could I compete with such learned men? The next afternoon, however, I was asked to address a group of women. They specifically asked that I share my prison experiences with them. This time I felt at home. Certainly I could tell them what the Lord had done in my life. They received me warmly and enthusiastically. Corey, one of the ladies, said afterward, this is your message. Share it wherever you go. She then handed me a check that enabled me to return all the money I had borrowed in New York. Suddenly the tables were turned. Instead of no work, I had to guard against overwork. Abraham Veraday's recommenda recommendation brought calls from every place asking me to come and share my testimony. The calls came from villages and towns as well as from big cities. I spoke in churches, prisons, universities, schools, and clubs. For almost 10 months, I traveled America, telling everywhere the story that Jesus Christ is reality even in the darkest days. I told them that he is the answer to all the problems in the hearts of men and nations. I knew it was so because of what he had done for me. That time of small beginnings in New York eventually led to Corey establishing a significant ministry all around the world and rebuilding former German concentration camps into homes for post-war refugees, just like Betsy had envisioned when they were in the concentration camp. And she did this until she was literally in her 90s, traveling the world and spreading the gospel in powerful ways. And when I think about how she first began, with people literally telling her she hadn't heard from God, she should return to Holland, nobody wanted to hear her message. And she just clung to the promises of God, saying, I know that God will use what seems like a small beginning. He will use what seems like a foolish thing to do something mighty. And just clinging to that promise and how God began to train her through that and open doors as she trusted him with a childlike faith. That is really powerful to me because sometimes we can look at someone who has done something significant in the kingdom of God and think that the door just swung open wide and they just stepped right through it. Those I know who have had a door just open wide for them and they didn't have to go through those struggles and those days of small beginnings and clinging to God with childlike faith, usually they don't go the distance. But those like Corey who had to struggle through and cling to the hope that God was with her, even when people were telling her she had misheard, those are the people that God uses the most mightily in his kingdom. 
So here's a key truth. When we make ourselves fully available to God, we won't always see the fruit of our labor immediately. Sometimes we won't even see it this side of heaven, but we can know that no step of obedience is ever wasted. His word, his gospel, his truth will not ever return void. It says in Isaiah 55, 11, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please. It shall prosper for the thing for which I sent it. When we take steps of obedience, even small, seemingly insignificant steps of obedience, and even when we're met with seeming failure and defeat, we don't need to know what the outcome is going to be. We simply need to make ourselves unconditionally available to God. And when I look at all these heroes of the faith that I often talk about, that is the common thread that I see between every single one of them. Most of them didn't have anything impressive by human standards, but they had unconditional availability to God. They started in the days of small beginnings, and God just breathed his spirit and life into their work and spread it around the world. The second story I want to highlight for you is Dr. Robert Jaffrey who was a missionary in Netherlands, New Guinea. He actually was a missionary in different areas of the world. He was very much a pioneer missionary and started these amazing works of sharing the gospel in remote places. But he was in Netherlands, New Guinea, when the country was taken by the Japanese during the war. He was there as a missionary, and his vision was to establish mission stations in the interior that had never been reached. Now, this was before that missionary movement that I mentioned earlier, where, mi where missionaries were going in there and reaching these tribes with the gospel. This pilot had been flying over the area. They didn't know any people lived there. And all of a sudden, he saw, just through the clouds, all of these people groups and tribes and villages, and he couldn't believe it. And so they realized that there are literally thousands and thousands of people in the interior that had never been reached with the gospel. They were kind of living in a Stone Age state, and they hadn't been uh, reached by modern civilization. And Robert Jaffrey's vision was to get missionaries in there and to take that territory for the gospel. And right as that vision is getting off the ground, their entire missionary group that he was there with were captured by the Japanese. They were pulled back out of the interior. Many were taken to concentration camps, and he and several other missionaries were placed under house arrest. It was a very, very difficult time. Now, he was an older man at this time, and he, I believe, was in his 70s, and he was had lots of health problems. He had had them before he went to the mission field, but he had like diabetes, and he had been in a diabetic coma. He had kidney disease. He had loads of, of health problems, and so he wasn't in good health, and now he's taken hostage by the Japanese. He's placed under house arrest. He doesn't have a way to get medicine. They don't really have even a way to get food. These missionaries had to figure out a way to like grow their own food on this property, because if they left the property, they would be shot on site by the Japanese. So things are looking pretty dark. There were not really a, a lot of pieces of good news. A lot of the news that they were getting was that the, the Japanese were basically taking over the world and winning the war. And so what would be going through your mind in this time? Like you come here with a vision, you want to take this territory for Christ, and it seems like everything is going in the opposite direction. It seems like your dreams and your visions are going to die with the, with the occupation of the Japanese to this country. And, you know, his, his health is poor. He doesn't even know if he'll survive from one day to the next. 
Darlene Deibler, who I talk about a lot in my messages, <clears throat> was one of those missionaries that was in the house with him under house arrest. Her husband had been taken to a concentration camp, and it was she and Dr. Robert Jaffrey's daughter and some other missionaries that were in this house and her mind is completely occupied with the tension and the strain of the war. And that's all she can think about. How long will this war last? Will I ever see my husband again? Will we be taken to a concentration camp? Will we survive? And yet, one day, she walks into the study where Dr. Jaffrey is sitting. It was one night. And, and she sees him with this vision for still reaching the interior of New Guinea. And this is an excerpt from her book, Evidence Not Seen. She's talking about how she read the verse, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions, from Joel 2.28. I closed the book of Joel and rose from my knees. Walking into the hall, I saw before me a partial fulfillment of that prophecy. There sat before me the old man dreaming his dreams. This is Dr. Robert Jaffrey that she sees sitting there. His eyes were closed, but I knew he wasn't sleeping. One hand rested on an open atlas, the other on the arm of the winged chair that had belonged to his father. I knew that by faith he and his Lord were moving down the great chain of islands known as the Netherlands East Indies. Sensing my presence, Dr. Jaff Jaffrey looked up and smiled, the smile of one who had seen, who had had sweet communion with the Lord. With steady hand and the voice of one assured of victory, he traced the map of our coming campaign to reach lost souls. This, Lassie, is our task. These are the areas we must enter after the war is over. After the war is over, it was just beginning. He traced the map of our coming campaign, the Vistal Lakes area down either side of the Cartinez's backbone. I'm butchering that. And at last, his finger came to rest, rest over the Grand Valley of the ba Valley of the Ballium. This, Lassie, is our task. Listen, do you hear it? The sound of the marching army of young men and women whom God is preparing for the day of spiritual battle and occupation of these areas. I realized how little I knew of what makes a true missionary statement statesman, of a faith that never staggers at the promises of God, no matter how incredible to the natural man its fulfillment seems, of a trust in the unchanging one who keeps the heart at rest and unperturbed in a changing world, of a burning love that counts not life dear unto itself but is expendable for God, and of a vision that is never dimmed. Here beside me was the man who had spied out the land and was with the first wave of troops to go ashore in Macassar to stake a claim for God. Once again, the world was enveloped in sorrow and difficulties, but these dark days of war were to Robert Alexander Jaffrey, the great missionary general, but days of retreat in which to plan the strategy of yet greater conquest. I dropped my head on my arm of the chair and found that there were tears on my cheeks. That afternoon, I reminded God that I was available, and never would I call my task common or mundane if I were part of the culmination of that old man's dreams. For that afternoon, I had seen a vision of the unfinished task. He has this clear vision, this mighty faith to reach this valley for the glory of God. But he never lived to see that dream realized. Dr. Jaffrey died of disease and malnutrition in a Japanese prison camp just a few months after sharing that vision with Darlene. So at first it would seem that all was in vain, that his prayers to reach that valley were not being heard and that the vision had died. Darlene herself went through the experience of losing her husband and losing pretty much everyone and everything in that war and almost losing her own life and just wasting away. She was 60 pounds when she came out of the Japanese uh, camp where she had been accused and sentenced to death and God spared her at the last minute, but she was wasting away. And she was the only one who even had heard Dr. Jaffrey's dream and he was now gone. 
So how could his, his dreams come true in the midst of such incredible hindrances? But we have to remember, God's word does not return void, and our steps of obedience are never in vain. Do not despise the day of small beginnings. God is faithful to water the seeds that are planted for his glory. So here's what happened after the war. This is an epilogue. This is from the epilogue of her book, Evidence Not Seen, Darlene Dibler's book. Darlene Dibler arrived in Oakland, California, emaciated and emotionally fatigued to be welcomed into her family's love and care on November 30th, 1945. The 23 pounds that had been starved from her body slowly returned, as did her physical and emotional reserves. Over the next two years, Darlene testified to the power and presence of God throughout her prison experience before many who marveled at the fact that she had survived at all. Time eased her grief over Russell's death while her memories of their life together in New Guinea confirmed her calling and necessity to return. She had been called to serve as a missionary long before she met Russell. She resisted the many words of advice against single women missionaries, especially one as young as she, as well as the encouragement to stay home and let some years of comfort repay her pain in the South Pacific. In 1946, a young man named Gerald Rose was given a film to use in deputation. It was a documentary of Reverend C. Russell Dibler's trek to the Vissel Lakes of the interior of Dutch New Guinea. Gerald Rose was already under appointment to this primitive mission field. Mutual friends arranged a meeting between Darlene and Jerry, unbeknownst to either of them. As it was in God's plan, Jerry and Darlene married on April 4th, 1948, and they had been there, and they had... <clears throat> And they began their ministry in New Guinea in early 1949. Together, Darlene and Jerry returned to the Vistal Lakes area and later pioneered the work among the Donnie tribe in the Ballium Valley. Now, this was the very area that Robert Jaffrey had prayed would be radically reached with the gospel of Christ. This was the area his, he was pointing to on the map that day. And that's exactly what happened. Darlene and her second husband stayed there for 40 years and saw God do a mighty work among those people. The Donnie people were transformed. They became a light among the interior of New Guinea. And even decades later, they became known to all the Christian missionaries who went in there as native people who were Christians of whom you could never ask too much. The first time I heard about the Donnie people was through a message by Otto Koning, who was in there as a missionary in the 60s. And he talked about the Donnie people and being able to bring some of them in to help him win his tribe for the gospel. He has some amazing stories about them, but that work began with Russell and Darlene and then Darlene and her second husband going in there. And that really had all stemmed from Dr. Robert Jaffrey's seemingly impossible and hopeless vision. God's word does not return void. Do not despise the day of small beginnings. I think that is one of the most powerful stories of redemption, of God finishing the work that he began that I've ever heard in Christian history. Just astounding. God puts these burdens on our heart for a reason. And even when we seem to watch the vision die, God's word will not return void. The third story I want to share is a story of, Afri of missionaries who went to Africa and met with seeming failure. If you were at the Set Apart Conference this year, this might ring a bell with you. It's the story of Savea Flood, David and Savea Flood, from 1921. Their story spans over several decades. And this one is, is not directly connected to the war, but a lot of what happened in the story was right after World War II and during the war. So <clears throat> this, one is, this one is almost like awe-inspiring. You can't even believe how powerful this story is. In 1921, 
A man by the name of David fled and his young wife, Sevea, and their little two-year-old son left Sweden for the interior of Africa. They traveled with another missionary couple from their church. They committed their lives to the mission field and they left for the unreached villages in Africa. They were filled with a sense of enthusiasm, optimism, courage, and excitement. They literally hacked their way through the mountainous regions of the Congo to begin their ministry to some unknown village, going totally on their own to the unreached arenas of that land. To their sadness, one village after another refused them entrance. They were told by villagers that they couldn't come in because the missionaries would anger the village gods and bring them trouble, so they wouldn't even let them in. After weeks of traveling by foot, literally hacking their ways at times through the jungle, they were low on supplies and exhausted. Their biography reads, they struggled to carry their supplies to the summit, and after putting up their tents, they knew they were too weary to set out again. So they decided to clear the brush and build mud huts, doing their best to reach the hostile villagers nearby. During the next agonizing weeks, which stretched into months, David and Sevea Flood struggled with learning Swahili, and along with the Ericssons, they tried everything they could to gain entrance into the village, but the chief only tightened his grip on the people. Both couples would often gather together and weep and pray that God would open a door for the gospel, but no door opened. Villagers were prohibited from going up that little mountain to visit the missionaries. Only one little village boy was allowed to go up once a week and sell the missionaries chickens and eggs. David was amazed at Sevea's insistence that while they might never reach the village and never come close to impacting Africa, they should focus on this little boy. So every time the boy visited their camp, she showered him with love and attention. She took time to talk with him, and they became friends. Months later, the other missionaries watched one afternoon as Sevea knelt with this little boy, and with tears streaming down her cheeks, she heard him pray in repentance and faith, believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. But he had to keep his decision for Christ a secret in the village, lest he never be allowed to return or even worse. To the other missionaries, their mission was a complete failure. Eventually, the Ericssons decided to leave and return to an established mission station many miles away. The floods decided to stick it out, even though they battled malaria, difficult conditions, and no opportunities in the village below their mountain. Sometime later, Savea announced that she was expecting their second child. By the time the baby was due, Savea Flood was desperately weak with malaria and high fever. When her little girl was born and Savea whispered that she should be called Aina, which was a classic Swedish name for girls, 17 days later, Savea Flood died. Hopeless and filled with bitter rage, David dug a grave for his 27-year-old wife and wondered how he could possibly care for his little boy and now a sickly baby girl. He decided to leave. He hired men from the village and left the mountain for good, bitter and angry. He was finished with the ministry. He was finished with the gospel. In fact, he was finished with God. Aina was given to a missionary couple who raised her as their own daughter and eventually settled in Minnesota. Eventually, Aina grew up and attended North Central Bible College in Minneapolis and married a godly young man who entered the ministry. Decades flew by. Aina had no information about her father. She knew very little of her past. She knew her parents' names, of course, in their homeland of Sweden, but that was about it. Then one day, unexpectedly, a Swedish religious magazine appeared in their mailbox at home. She had no idea who sent it, and of course, she couldn't read the Swedish language, but as she turned the pages, one photograph arrested her attention. It was a picture of a small white cross planted in the earth over an obvious burial site, and on the cross was the name Sevea Flood. She jumped in her car and raced to the home of one of the college professors who was Swedish. She translated it for Sevea as she read the article about missionaries who had come across a village in the Belgian Congo and came across this burial plot and took a picture. They began to ask about the gravesite and found that it was a missionary who died shortly after burying a little girl. Then the article mentioned that the missionary was able to lead a young village boy to Christ. 
The article continued that sadly this missionary team never learned that the little African boy went on in time to gain permission from the village chief to build a school. Gradually, this now mature young teacher taught the village children the gospel of Christ and all of his students came to trust in Jesus Christ as well. Then they led their parents to the Lord and even the chief became a Christian. Now that village had 600 believers and a vibrant church. Aina couldn't believe the news. She began to cry and thank God for letting her learn the truth of her parents and their sacrifice and the harvest of spiritual fruit. For their 25th wedding anniversary, the Bible College gave the hearse a vacation in Sweden, where, among other things, Aina could search for her father. He was an old man wasting away as an alcoholic and a professed agnostic who dared anyone to talk to him about God. He was filled with bitterness because of all that had happened to him on the mission field. Aina went to see him. She writes, I went over to his bed and took his hand. Papa, it's Aina. He turned and looked at me and immediately began to weep. Aina, I never wanted to give you away. It's all right, Papa, I said. God took care of me. He stiffened suddenly and the tears stopped and he spat out, God, God forgot us all. Our lives were ruined because of him. All that time, all our efforts, all our suffering and tears and only one little boy and then I lost your mother. Papa, I've got a story to tell you. You didn't go to Africa in vain. Mama didn't die in vain. That little boy came to Christ and grew up to win that whole village to Christ. And now today, 40 years later, there are six people, 600 people in that village serving Jesus Christ because you followed the call of God on your life. He slowly turned around until his eyes met mine, hopeful eyes, longing to believe what I had told him, longing for the turmoil of his life to be redeemed in some way. Papa, it's a well-known story now. We have a great God. The tears returned, and he began to talk. By the end of that afternoon, the kindness of God had brought him back to repentance and restoration of fellowship with the Lord. Aina and her husband eventually returned to America. A few weeks later, David Flood went home to heaven. Aina would later learn that the final hours of his life in his delirium, he had begun speaking in Swahili. A few years later, Aina and her husband attended a world evangelism conference held in London. Several leaders representing denominations and associations of believing churches throughout Africa were giving reports. One report was from the nation of Zaire by the director of a national church association in the Congo region. He spoke eloquently about the spread of the gospel in his country. He said, we have 32 mission stations, a fully staffed modern hospital, several large Christian schools, and our churches have 110,000 believers. Afterwards, Aina rushed forward to ask him some questions, one in particular. Sir, could you have met a young missionary couple by the name of David and Savea Flood? They built their mud huts on a mountainside overlooking a village. Yes, madam, he said. I knew them well. I used to sell them chickens and eggs. It was the missionary Savea Flood who led me to Jesus Christ. He asked, and who are you? I am Savea Flood's daughter. I was born on that mountaintop. He immediately embraced me as he held me and swayed back and forth, sobbing from the depths of his soul and said, I have so often wondered whatever happened to that baby girl whose mother died while trying to reach my village with the gospel. He then looked at me and said through tears, you must travel back to my village. Your mother is the most famous person in our church history. Aina agreed, and after months of planning, she and her husband made the long journey back to the place of her birth. Eventually, they arrived at the village. Her parents had cried out to God to reach with the gospel. Only this time, there were hundreds of villagers waiting along the dirt road. As they came into view, the villagers began cheering and singing. They had built arches across the village entrance, covered with flowers for her reception. Aina writes, after many hugs and greetings, eventually the pastor of the village church led me up the hill, followed by hundreds of believers, and there at the top of the hill was a flat place beneath a grove of trees. The pastor pointed to it and said, this is where your parents' mud hut once stood, and this is where you were born. He then walked a few steps until they came to a simple grave. Over it stood a tall palm tree overlooking the entire valley below. Marking the grave was a small wooden cross, and on it the name Savea Flood. 
1896 to 1923. I knew I was standing where my mother had one day knelt with a little boy. I now knew the meaning of the harvest of joy that comes from sowing seed with tears. The pastor opened his Bible, quieted the villagers, lifted his voice, and read one line from Psalm 126, verse 5, they that sow in tears shall reap in joy. Just an astounding story. God's word does not return void. And even though David fled, gave up, and said, God forgot us, God forsook us, there's no fruit of this ministry, God was still working behind the scenes. The, the seeds that were planted were watered in a way that he never could have imagined. So the key truth I want to share with you from all of these three stories is this. Even if you don't think that your small steps of obedience are making an impact, God can and will use them for ch to change this world for eternity. Our only job is to make ourselves available to him and leave the outcome in his hand because his word will not return void. If you are discouraged, if you have a burden on your heart that feels impossible, if you are meeting with roadblocks and obstacles, be encouraged by these stories. Be encouraged that God tells us not to despise the day of small beginnings. So out of the ashes and heartache of that war, World War II, came a mighty movement of God in our country and around the world. God was working even amid the heartache and disaster of war. Out of the ashes and heartache of our modern-day cultural wars, God can do the same when we make ourselves available to him with childlike faith. Out of the ashes of our own weakness and our own disappointments and our own roadblocks, God can bring a mighty world-changing outcome. And even when it seems that the vision is completely impossible and has all but died, like in Robert Jaffrey's situation, God is still at work. When I look back in my own life, in our ministry together, my ministry with Eric, it has been the times when we felt at our weakest, when we didn't see a clear path forward, but we cried out to God saying, we know you have something for us. We know you are at work even when we can't see it. That's when we have seen him work in the most powerful and mighty ways. That's when we've seen the greatest miracles in our life. And as Hudson Taylor said, all God's giants have been weak men who did great things for God because they reckoned on God being with them. And that is very encouraging because you can hear these epic stories, you can study the lives of these great men and women who changed the world for Christ, and you can feel like, I'm not even in their league. But Hudson Taylor says they were all weak men and women. And the reason they did great things for God is simply because they reckoned on God being with them. Even in the face of discouragement, even in the face of failure, they knew God was with them, and God worked mightily through their lives. Don't give up on God's story before he's finished writing the story. So often, there's, you know, the beginning, we start out with vision and excitement and enthusiasm, then there's the middle, and we're met with roadblocks and defeat and seeming failure, and we want to give up and say, well, God dropped the ball. And yet he's still writing the story. A lot of times we don't give him the chance to show us what the outcome of that story is going to be. Keep holding on to him with childlike faith and don't despise the day of small beginnings. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much that you work through the weak things, the foolish things, to shame the wise. And so often your mighty works in this world start with small, seemingly insignificant steps of obedience, the day of small beginnings. And I pray that in this room and anyone listening to this message that you would raise up the next generation of mighty men and women who will trust you with that childlike faith and cling to your promises even when all hope seems lost because we know, Lord, that you use the foolish things to change this world for your glory and we make ourselves freshly available to you for that purpose. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.